As was mentioned this morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles to a new book in the Old Testament, a new study as we begin the book of Judges. And so you can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you, Judges chapter 1. Appreciate your patience with our music tonight. In the midst of this transition with our worship director, a few things fell through the cracks. I'm so thankful to Trey that he would... uh, uh, fill the gap as best as he could, and we're grateful for that. It's one of those intern duties to always be prepared for whatever we may need you to do. Judges chapter 1, we're going to look at the entire chapter tonight, but we'll read through verse 26. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up to the Lord, and the Lord gave the Canaanites the Perizzites into the hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and found fought against him, defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonite Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonite Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went up against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahman and Tolmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber, the name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him a Kasha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territories, and Ashkelon with its territories, and Ekron with its territories. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Hebron was called to Caleb, was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, 
and the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, it is our joy and our privilege, as we have done for several years, to have a Reformation conference once again. And in a few short months, the time will be upon us again. And we have the privilege of inviting the Dr. Dale Ralph Davis to be with us. Dale is a oftentimes goes by Ralph, is a wonderful Old Testament scholar. In fact, Pastor Myers and myself are using one of his commentaries on this particular book for this sermon series. He is a great uh, pastor and a very fine preacher, and so we are delighted to have him for our weekend. And we have decided to name our Reformation Conference this weekend, or this weekend that will come up in October, Post-Tenebras Lux, which if you're a student of the Reformation, you will know what that means. If you're not, then you perhaps just believe that I spoke in tongues. But post-tenebras lux is a Latin phrase that means after darkness, light. It was a slogan, a rallying cry of the Reformation, that literally after the darkness of the medieval age and the seemingly darkness of the church, the light of the revelation of Scripture began to inform the church and its study and how it practiced and its conduct. And indeed, the Reformation began because of that. The light specifically was the truth of God shining into the darkness, just as Jesus said it would. When he said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ indeed is to be just that. It is to be a light shining in the darkness, the light of truth and the Spirit of God. And that was true of the Reformation as a whole and hopefully is true of our day, at least of Reformed churches But as we begin this new study, this new book, the book of Judges, perhaps the series could be called Post-Lux Tenebris. In other words, after light, darkness. Because that is indeed what we read throughout this entire book. As this book begins with these words, after the death of Joshua you know anything of Israel's history, the time of Joshua was indeed a glorious time in the history of the nation of Israel. As they come into the promised land, how God opens the Jordan River for them to come in and to defeat the nations that are before them. And the nation of Israel, though not perfect, very much thrived under Joshua's leadership. But after his death, It's a different story. What we see and what we will see is that it's a nation that is degrading into 
gross sin. And when I say gross sin, I mean that quite literally and figuratively. It was both great sin as well as oftentimes grotesque sin. And we hear that oft-repeated phrase throughout this book that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They stopped following the ways of the Lord and did what they believed was right. And the result is that the nation of Israel goes from these great and glorious heights to this very dark time, from light indeed into darkness. And the book of Judges, therefore, is a cautionary tale as well for us, that we should not think of ourselves too greatly or that this could not happen to us. Because sadly, what I think we see in this book and what took place in much of Israel is sadly what is taking place in our world and even in the visible church today. And in that way, the book of Judges is a very modern book and very applicable to us. But that does not mean it's a depressing book or a negative book. Because what we see and what we should be encouraged by is that the same God, the God that was the God of Israel is the same God today, the one that is indeed the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, his will, his ways are not thwarted, that he was still at work, even in the days of judges. And he is still very much at work in our day, and that he uses some very interesting figures, as we will see, individuals that are far from perfect, the likes of Gideon and Samson and Deborah. And what we see is that God still uses very interesting characters, namely some of you, as well as me. Well, we'll see that tonight in chapter one in two points light, and then darkness. First, light. As I mentioned at the very beginning, the book of Judges opens up with these words after the death of Joshua. That phrase could be used as a title or a general timeline for the entire book of Judges. It does not mean that everything that is written is actually after the time of the death of Joshua, because we'll see in chapter 2 actually the, the formal death, the descriptive death of Joshua himself, but rather this is to give the, the general category, the general timeline. And oftentimes you see this with books of the Bible, do you not? That Exodus begins with the death of Joseph, and Joshua begins with the death of Moses, and indeed, this book begins with the death of Joshua, and 1 Kings begins with the death of David. Uh, different epics in the Israel's history can be categorized by these very influential leaders. And indeed, as we think about that, we can learn our first lesson, perhaps, from this book, that as great as these individuals are, and as great as any men or women can be, they are indeed just that. They are just men. They are just women. They are human. They are flesh and blood. And therefore, they are 
mortal. They are not God, and therefore they are temporal. They are here today and gone tomorrow. That is what Moses tells us, does he not, in Psalm 90, that only psalm that we know of that was written by Moses in the Psalter. He begins about saying that the Lord is our dwelling place in all generations, that a thousand years is like a day, Moses tells us, of our God. But then he goes on to say, but you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new, the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. That indeed is mankind, isn't it? That even the greats, the Josephs, the Moses, the Joshuas in this case, and the Davids, even though we could spend the remainder of our time extolling their virtues of these wonderful men, They all have one thing in common. They all die. And that is why Moses tells us again in Psalm 90 that we are to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, meaning that we have a limited number of days. Now, that may be discouraging in some ways, might perhaps be a melancholy thought, but I think it's actually meant to be an encouragement. It's meant that we are to walk in wisdom. We're to have purpose. We have diligence with our days, that we don't have extra time. You might have a, a little bit of extra money, but none of us have any extra time, excess time. It is all limited, and that God is indeed greater than any and all of us because we come and go. Mankind rises and falls But the truth is, God stays the same. And that, therefore, we are to look not to men or to women, but to our everlasting and eternal God. Well, the second lesson comes very quickly from that as well, that even though man is mortal and comes and goes, that does not mean that man has no significance at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? That the Lord is pleased to use men and women, as a part of his kingdom. This indeed, this book should teach us that leadership matters. When we think about those figures, when you think about Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David, we see wonderful, incredible leaders, flawed for sure, and the scriptures talk about their their sins and are not quiet about them, but they are very much used of God And that is an important lesson for us. It's always an important lesson, but especially at this time and in this season in the life of our church as we are going about officer nominations. We're to choose leaders that demonstrate leadership, specifically in their example. People that you can say, he is a a model that I can follow He is one, as I said this morning, that I could submit to and would want to submit to because I know that he he loves me and and cares for me and loves the church and loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is giving of his life and service. That is a challenge for us all, isn't it? Those of us that are 
current leaders or those of you that are teachers or leaders in this church? Is this the way that I view myself? Do I understand that the way that I lead, I am to have others to follow? And am I leading in such a way that others should follow? Can I say like the Apostle Paul was able to say, come follow me even as I follow Christ. Can we say that to our spouse? Can we say that to our children? Can we say that to our church? We ought to. Because I think, again, one of the cautionary tales of this book is that without good leadership, without good vision, without good purpose, the the people, the nation, the church, indeed, suffers. And so praise God for godly leaders. And I do praise God for the leaders that he has placed in this church. What a privilege and a joy it is to, to minister with them. What we see as we begin this study is that things in Israel, because of Joshua's leadership, start decently well. We see that in several cases here at the beginning of the chapter. We see it corporately, and then we see it individually. And did you notice first, corporately, as the tribes of Israel come in, they realize, as God has told them, that they're going to have to drive out their enemies They are to take this land that God has given to them as an inheritance. And as they do so, they inquire of the Lord. That is good. That is a wonderful lesson that they had learned. Perhaps a lesson that they had learned the hard way. You remember in the book of Joshua, the one time that they did not inquire of the Lord. They were deceived by the Gibeonites. But here we see them that they inquire of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? To fight against them. And we see that the Lord gives the answer. Judah shall go up. And so Judah indeed does go up. And Judah does something that is very beautiful. Something that we should not overlook. Judah says to Simeon, a, a neighboring tribe, Simeon, you come and help us. And if you do so, we will then come and help you. And so they do. And so we see this brother helping a brother, a a brother tribe helping another brother tribe. We see sisters helping sisters. Boys and girls, those of you that are here, that's a wonderful lesson, isn't it? Brothers and sisters helping one another, working together, perhaps on a chore, perhaps on a project. You help me and I will help you and you will oftentimes find out that the project, the chore, goes a lot quicker and oftentimes is a lot more enjoyable. Well, that extends far beyond children, doesn't it? It's a wonderful lesson for the body of Christ that each is to help one another, each part helping the one in need. No part saying, I don't need you. No other part saying, they don't need me. No, Paul tells us very clearly, does he not, in his letters, his epistles, that if one neglects the other, the whole body hurts. But here we see the body of Christ, these tribes working together. And because of that, the the Lord is pleased. It's precious in the sight of the Lord. 
when brothers dwell together in unity, when they have a common cause, as they labor together, they are not in division, they are not in strife, but they are unified in this purpose. And what we see is that the Lord is not only pleased, but he blesses it. We see this in verse 4, that they go up against the Canaanites and the Parasites, and it says that they defeated 10,000 of them. And they defeat a major enemy, that of the king of Bezek, Adonai Bezek, the, the lord of Bezek. Now, it says something very interesting here. It says that as they do so, they cut off the thumbs and the toes of this king, of this lord, this ruler. This is a very early introduction into the book of Judges, that if you are not a fan of blood and are a little bit squeamish, Judges might be a challenging book in that way. But if you are an eight-year-old boy, it is very fascinating. And by that I mean, if you are a man, it's quite fascinating, because ladies, let's admit it, all men are about eight-year-olds as they think about this type of subject. We always are fascinated those things that you find quite disturbing and should. But you might ask, why do they do this thing? Well, we see that this was the practice of this king by his own confession. You see that in verse 7. As he says, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes I cut off, and they used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. You see, as he defeated his enemies, he not only defeated them, he humiliated them. He made sport of them. He would throw dinner parties and have them come up to, so they could mock these kings, these rulers, these people that thought they were strong, and watch them and laugh at them as they would struggle to pick up food to survive, as they struggled to walk. And what we see is that the Lord's retributive Justice comes back upon this king that did this. What goes around comes around, as they say. A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, or in this case, a a thumb for a thumb, or a toe for a toe. Now, let me give a quick aside here. That is not the type of attitude that we are to take personally. As Christ calls us to turn the other cheek with insult and revilements, But on a corporate level, on a civil justice level, this is the way that civil courts should proceed. In other words, when there is civil justice, retributive justice is the right form of justice that God calls for and demands, and that is exactly what is taking place here. This is civil justice taking place on this land. And even the king recognizes that. Do you notice that? He says, What I have done, so God has repaid me. Would all that violate God's commandments repent in such a way and recognize what they have done before it is too late? That the Lord indeed does bring about vengeance. He will repay, says the Lord. And what we go on to see is they not only defeat this strong king in this strong area, but they also take Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem means a lot to us, but in this day, it was just another city that needed to be conquered, but we are told that Joshua, or excuse me, that Judah takes Jerusalem, 
And that city becomes an important part of Israel's history. Most believe that it's Samuel that is writing this book. And so when Samuel writes this book, Jerusalem is going to and has become a very important and influential city. But at that time, it's just another city. But the Lord would use it significantly as we know. Well, as I said, what happened corporately also happens individually. It happens not only in the tribe of Judah, but in the life of Caleb. Now, many of you are familiar with the life of Caleb. What a wonderful man if there was ever a a hero that we should model our lives after. In the Old Testament, it was that of Caleb. One of only two spies that believed that they should have gone into the promised land when they went to go spy it out. And therefore, he and Joshua were the only two, along with their families, that were over the age of 40, that were allowed to go into the promised land. All else died in the wilderness. And so what we see of Caleb is that even at the age of 80 plus, he still has fervency for the Lord. He still has fight. We hear of that in the later chapters that Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses has said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. You remember the sons of Anak? Those were the, the giants of the land. Those were the Anakim, those that were so fearful to go against, and yet Caleb wants to take that particular land. We see that his fervor was still strong. It did not fade. He did not grow cold. No, until the day of his death, he was trusting in the Lord and still battling on. And so those of you that are in the sunset years of your life, Caleb is a wonderful model what it means to be fervent for Christ and for his kingdom. And what we see is that what he had, he also wanted for his family, especially for his daughter. And so he sets up a test, as it were, that whoever takes this land gains my daughter. Now, I don't know if dads, you should do something like this, but you can understand what Caleb was trying to get after. He wanted a man for his daughter that, first of all, trusted the Lord, that trusted the promises of God, that believed that the Lord would give him victory, and that also a man that would execute wisely, couldn't be foolish in taking this land. And I say, you can understand why you'd want that. Parents, isn't that what we want for our children, and especially for their spouses that they be strong in their faith, in their belief. That we do not want those that are weak or wishy-washy. No, we want men for Jesus and women for Jesus. And we need to be raising up our children in such a way that they would make such spouses, that they indeed would love Christ well we see that Othniel was the winner of this test, so to speak. And we'll read later on in the book of Judges that he is actually one of the judges used by the Lord. But what I find very interesting is that Caleb's daughter was no pushover either. We see that she was a very strong woman, strong woman in her faith. And we'll see throughout this book that there are very many strong women in the book of Judges. And she says to her, dad, dad, 
Thank you for setting up this test. I'm glad that my boyfriend, now husband, has gained this land, but um, we're going to need some water. And so give us the water rights to this land. Now, again, these things might be seen as just things that we can read over, but why is that significant? Caleb's daughter is saying, we're setting up shop. We are planting roots, literally and figuratively here. This is the place where I want my family for generations to dwell. Why? Because we believe that God has given us this land. And we believe in the covenant. And like Joshua, me and my family, we are going to serve the Lord. And we're going to do so right here. So give us this so that we are able to settle in this land. And it says that Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Well, as I mentioned, all of this was good. And I would like to say that the trend continues throughout the book. But no, we begin to see darkness. As I mentioned, you just begin to see the cracks in the wall in this chapter. The author of Judges, again, who most believe was Samuel, begins to show some of the decay taking place. You notice it in verse 19, where it talks about all of these victories that Judah has. They have a a stellar record. They coordinated with Simeon. They drove out their enemies. They took the possession of the land. But notice what it says, that they took possession of the hill country, but... They could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. You notice that. They said they did all of this, but they did not do this one part. And it's because they had chariots. Now, was it because they were unable to do so? Or was it because they were unwilling to do so? And I think, what is the message of this book is that it was the latter. Meaning that it wasn't because they couldn't drive out the chariots, but it was more because they were fearful to do so. Those horses, those chariots were intimidating. They were imposing. So they thought, well, you know what? We're, we're good in the hills. We'll give them the plains. Well, what is it that they had forgotten? Well, the same thing that we forget when we become worried, when we become fearful, that they had the Lord, that the Lord was with them. In fact, that's how verse 19 begins. Did you notice that? And the Lord was with Judah. He had promised his presence. He had promised his protection. No doubt they could have defeated their enemies if they gave themselves to it because the Lord would have blessed them because this is what the Lord commanded them to. But their enemies looked bigger and their enemies looked scarier. Instead of living by faith, they lived by fear. King David would later pen these words from Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots. And some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But they had forgotten to do that, hadn't they? They had forgotten to trust the Lord. They had begun to do the very same thing that the ten spies had done 
40 years before. We can't go in there. They are like giants. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. And despite Caleb and Joshua saying, the Lord is on our side, the ten spies were able to convince all of Israel, nope, our fears are greater. And it says the Lord was not pleased with that generation. And yet what we see in Joshua is the very same thing happening again. We can't. We can't do it. We're good. We will live with compromise. I know that the Lord said drive out our enemies, but that's hard. That's difficult. We would rather just dwell here in the hill countries. Who cares if our enemies are at our footsteps? They'll do their things. We will do our own. But we know from the rest of the book that's not how it takes place, is it? That the natural moral drift is never towards godliness but away from it. And what we read in the rest of the chapter is the very same thing. From verse 27 all the way to the end of the chapter, you see this repeated theme. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And the Amorites, verse 34, oppressed the people of Dan. And they did not overcome them. Again and again, we read of the very same thing in the south and in the north. They try to have some interesting ways of defeating the Canaanites. They even, in some places, it says in verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. You notice that. They decided to do what they thought was best. Well, you know what? They could actually be useful to us. We know better than God. God told us to drive them out, but no, we're just going to keep them near because we could perhaps make a profit off of them. It's many ways like what the serpent did with Eve, is it not? Did the Lord really say that? No, you can do it this way. You can do it your way. And that is quite convicting, isn't it? And it reminds us that apostasy never starts with full-fledged rejection of God. No, it starts where? Doubting his word? Doubting his promises? Doubting God himself? By living by fear instead of faith? Walking by sight and not by trusting God? Hebrews 11.1 tells us that we are to be reminded that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, meaning that we are to believe that which is spiritual more than what we are able to see with our very own eyes. Namely, we are to believe God, we are to believe his promises and believe that that is a reality greater than the reality that we can see and that we can experience in this life. Well, this is what Judah and the rest of Israel were doing. They were living and acting out of the flesh and out of fear and what they thought was best rather than faith in God. Again, it is convicting, isn't it? Because that is the beginning of apostasy. It's the beginning of atheism. It's the beginning of denying God. So when we see those things in our lives, don't don't dwell on them. Don't think, well, that's just a little faux pas. No, that is a sin, and we need to repent of it. That is 
Indeed, what we read throughout this book is that we see the ugly and evil fruits of unrepentance. Indeed, it is ugly, very ugly. And therefore, we've done nothing to do with it. Therefore, we are to keep short accounts with God and with others. We're to name our sin, to name our lack of faith at times, to name our lack of trust, and we're to flee to God in repentance and confession so that we can have a greater trust and love of him. Well, as we close tonight, let me deal with one thing perhaps that is on your mind and often what detractors will use to detract of the book of Joshua and the book of Judges and indeed of God himself. And many will say that what we read in Joshua and Judges is ethnic cleansing, of ethnic purging, and that the Israelites are to exterminate the Canaanites because of their ethnicity. And they'll even go on to say, and God even commanded that. And so how can you believe this? How can you believe such a God as that? What is our response? What is our defense? Well, our response is, first of all, that God gave the opportunity for all to repent of their ways and for all to join themselves with the people of God. And we see that throughout Israel's history, do we not? In fact, we see a couple examples of that. We see in verse 16, we read of Moses' father-in-law. Do you remember Jethro? He was a Midianite. And yet he comes to faith in God Almighty and joins himself with the people of God. One thing that you may not know is that Caleb and his father, his father was also a Midianite, perhaps came with Jethro and with others because we read in Joshua that Caleb was a Kenite, a Kenizzite, and that's what we read here of Moses' father-in-law. He was of the descendants of the Kenites. And so Caleb himself would have come from these, what we'd see, foreign ethnicities, and yet they join themselves with the people of God. And we can say several other examples of Rahab and Ruth and Uriah the Hittite and many more that no doubt were unnamed. And so there was an opportunity for all foreigners to be a part of the people of God, that it wasn't based just on ethnicity. It never was. Jesus' family tree is literally peppered with foreigners. And so we should not think that Israel was ever one ethnic group, but more than the Canaanites' ethnicity. Their destruction was brought about because of their immorality. And that is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verses 3 through 6. In fact, God says before they even go into the land that he is not giving this land to the Israelites because of their righteousness. No, he says in verse 4 of chapter 9, Do not say in your hearts, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, that is, the Canaanites, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Again, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, he says. Are you going to possess this land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And so what we see very clearly is that God is judge 
that he can impose his punishment on any and whomever and whenever he so believes. And that is the lesson that we need to learn even to this day, do we not? We should not say, oh, those poor Canaanites. No, what we should say is, why them and not me? I'm equally deserving. God should equally impose such sinful judgment upon me as he did upon those Canaanites. And there's only one reason and one reason alone. It's because of the grace and mercy of God that we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is indeed the proper place to end this first study in Judges. And we even see a little hint of that, do we not? At the very beginning of this chapter, when they inquire of the Lord, who is to go up first? Which tribe was it? It's the tribe of Judah. And therefore, a light bulb should go off for us that even though Judah would not ultimately do what they were commanded to fully, there would be one that would come from the tribe of Judah that would be the great lion of Judah who would not falter, who would not fail, but who would please his father perfectly at every point to the point of death. And so it is in his name that we come, the great king of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we find courage, that we find hope, that we find greater faith, we find the needed righteousness for our sins. He is that and so much more, isn't he? So as we begin this study, let us dwell in light, even as he is in the light. And by his grace and through his spirit, may we act accordingly. For indeed, he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray for these lessons before us. They are plentiful. May we not compromise according to truth, but may we live according to your word. And Lord, there's many things in this book that are very uncomfortable, that make us uncomfortable. And Lord, in many ways, it shows sin, not just sin out there, but it shows sin in our own hearts. And so, Lord, would you drive out our own fear, our own lack of faith, our own going our own way, doing our own thing rather than yours, O oh Lord. And would we live according to your truth, by your word, and through your spirit, we pray. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.